Why is there death? And why does there seem to be so many problems in the world today? People don't like the explanations that are given in God's holy word that sin and death are related to one another. And so they come up with other alternatives like evolution. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of the book of Romans, we spent the first half of this week in the first half of chapter 5. As we pick up today in verses 12 and 13, the text gets a little more challenging as the Apostle Paul explains that mankind starts off in a sinful state because of the actions of Adam in the Garden of Eden. We're in a very challenging portion of Paul's letter to the Romans. Many pastors would just skip over it because it is difficult to understand, but I am committed to preaching every single word of this letter. It's a very challenging portion. The plot begins to thicken. I suppose maybe it was texts like this that the Apostle Peter had in mind when he said some of the things that Paul wrote were, quote, hard to understand. But while it's hard, it's not impossible. And as a pastor, I have to feed brand new Christians who've been saved just a few days. And I have to feed people who are mature Christians, maybe who've been saved for three or four decades and everything in between. So you won't understand everything I say on a given week, but there's something for you if your heart is open and God will teach you and help you and strengthen you. Now, there are many critical theological doctrines that are unfolded here in the second half of Romans 5. Such issues like creation versus evolution. This section also deals with the fall of man, how sin came into the world, and how what we call original sin brought a death sentence with it. Sometimes you'll hear people say, well, you Christians say that because Adam sinned, I'm born a sinner. That just doesn't seem fair to me. You've heard that before. Well, this passage is going to answer that question. As we come to future weeks in this section, he's also going to deal with the issue of the atonement. For whom did Christ die? That he didn't die just for a particular group of people, but for every person who has lived, who's alive, and who's yet to be born. And so Paul is going to make it very, very clear to us about some very, very important doctrines. Now you can see the title of this morning's message is God's Death Sentence. Sounds rather gloomy, I suppose. But it's an important thought for us to consider. A lot of people don't want to talk about death, or they want to ignore it or redefine it. But God's revelation alone can be trusted. Modern science would say, well, man, will eventually overcome death. Some argue that in their theories of evolution, that if man evolves long and high enough and far enough, that eventually he won't die. But history shows otherwise, whether people have lived a very long life or a very short life or something in between, death will come. But we need to think after God's thoughts as to how we should view death. Romans 5, it sounds like you found it. We want to begin reading where we left off in verse 12. Follow along in your Bibles. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, 
who is a type of him who was to come. In the early days of our country, the Puritans taught their children with a little book called the New England Primer. And this primer set forth not just uh, principles on reading and language, but moral principles. For instance, when they learned the letters of the alphabet, under the letter A, it said, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. Under X, it said, Xerxes the Great did die, and so must you and I. They taught their children of the reality of death. There are also a number of nursery rhymes in them that originally had great spiritual origins. Some that seem rather silly today, but were not to the Puritans. One is this, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Now, this rhyme has been secularized largely by the way it's been illustrated. Most of us can't hear that rhyme without thinking of an egg. But there's no mention of an egg in the rhyme. That's only been present in about, for about 100 years. The Puritan who wrote this rhyme was not talking about an egg. He was talking about a man. And he was speaking about the fact that all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't fix fallen Humpty Dumpty. They couldn't put him back together again. And our passage speaks of a man who sat on the wall of innocence and who fell. And no one but God can help him. Now, remember the context of our passage. Remember, there are three great divisions to the letter, and each section in turn divides into three sections. We're in the doctrinal section where three major doctrines are highlighted. First, the doctrine of condemnation, that man by nature is a sinner and therefore a child of wrath. Paul argues in Romans 1.18 to 3.19 that no one can claim innocence before God, because no one can claim ignorance about God, that God has spoken to all men in some way through the revelation He has given either in creation, in conscience, or through the Bible itself. Then he deals with the doctrine of justification. How is it that God can be just and at the same time justify or forgive man? And then the third section that we will come to when we come into chapter 6 deals with the doctrine of sanctification which is a term used to describe that process by which we become more like Christ. So justification deals with our position. Sanctification deals with our practice. Now that's the broader context. So we're in that section that deals with justification. Notice the very first word in our passage this morning, therefore. And of course, whenever you see the word therefore, you should always ask, what is it therefore? This is the sixth therefore in his letter. Now remember in chapter 2, he explained that man's heart is sinful and in need of redemption. Chapter 3, he describes that that redemption comes not by works, not by ritual, not by ancestry, not by one's position, but through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on a cross. In chapter 4, he dips back into Israel's history and he takes the two greatest men that they admired, Abraham and David. He focuses on Abraham, he, he gives David a brief mention, but he shows that both of these men were not saved by works, that no Old Testament saint could be because they had the same problem we have. The penalty is death and only death will satisfy God. And that they were saved by grace through faith. Their faith was in Messiah who is going to come. And we looked at the Old Testament quotations and carefully examined that. But he wasn't giving us simply a biography on David and Abraham. He wanted to apply it to us. So when you step into chapter 
5, the very first word in 5.1 is the word therefore. And so in verses 1 through 11 of this chapter, he describes some of the implications of justification, like a secure peace with God, but also persecution or what he calls tribulations. Tribulation, a technical term in the Bible, not to refer just to hardship, but a specific kind, the kind of hardship that comes for living for Christ. Now in the second half of the chapter, he's going to draw a conclusion by showing how Jesus can reverse the effect of Adam's sin. Now this section is also going to serve as a bridge because when you come to chapters 6, 7, and 8, he's going to deal with sanctification. You don't want to miss a single message. But he's been dealing up till this point with condemnation and justification. And here at the end of this chapter, he's going to bring the two together and teach us about how we are all condemned in Adam, but anyone who has faith can be justified in Adam, that there's a point of identification. You're either identified with Adam this morning or Christ. And that's going to become a very important truth as it relates to the cross and its effect today on a saved person. He's going to argue in the sixth chapter, not only are we saved from the penalty of sin, as Romans 3 teaches, but we're also saved from the power, from the authority, from the reign of sin, as Romans 6 teaches. Now, therefore, in verse 12, since we are justified, since we are reconciled because of this, he's going to explain further that what we lost in Adam can be gained in Christ. And the key to understanding this section is the little word, one. When God repeats himself, it's not because he has nothing to say. It's because he doesn't want us to miss something. So 11 times in 12 verses, he uses the word one. I have everyone circled in my Bible. Verse 12, Paul speaks of one man. Verse 15, by the transgression of the one man, he died. And at the end of the verse, the grace of the one man. Again, in verse 16, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. Then he adds, for on the one hand, uh, the judgment arose from one transgression. Verse 17, for if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one. And then he will speak of another one at the end of the verse Uh, that through Jesus comes life, through the one Jesus Christ. Verse 18, again, he speaks of through one transgression, even so through one act. Verse 19, for as through the one man's disobedience, speaking of Adam, the many were made sinners, even through the obedience of the one, speaking of Christ, many will be made righteous. Eleven ones and twelve verses. This is the story between two ones. One of the ones is Adam, the other one, of course, is Christ. And again, he's bringing together two doctrines, the doctrine of condemnation and justification, because he wants us to understand something in the sixth chapter concerning sanctification. Now, this whole section is actually summarized in a single verse in the Bible in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, Corinthians, which he wrote, of course, before Romans. In 1 Corinthians 15, 45, he said, The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And so just a little couplet there. It's in seed form, and he spends 12 verses in this chapter to explain it. He's going to compare the first Adam with the second Adam, with the last Adam, and the consequences that come from both acts. Now, 
This section, 12 to 23, really divides into three sections. In verses uh, 12 to 14 that we're going to examine today, we are introduced to Adam in Christ. In verses 15 through 17, he's going to contrast Adam in Christ. And then in verses 18 through 21, he's going to compare Adam in Christ. There's so much here. We'll spend at least three hours on it. But today we want to think about God's death sentence. If you want to take notes, the very first thing we need to investigate is the entrance of death into all the world. The entrance of death into all the world. Please look again now at verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Now the topic of verse 12 is sin and death, and this is very important because it summarizes the stages in human history from one man sinning to all men dying. First, we're told sin entered into the world through one man. Now, he's not named anywhere here, but we know who it is, namely Adam. And so, I need to pause here for a second, because I know it's very fashionable in our day to say that Adam and Eve were not real historical people. And you can't ignore that if you're going to exegete this passage of Scripture. If you're going to explain this passage of Scripture, you have to have established in your mind that Adam and Eve were real historical people, or the whole argument that Paul is going to make becomes absolutely meaningless. And there are many pastors, when they speak about Adam and Eve, they don't speak of him as, as an historical person, or her for that matter, but as... Uh, theological parables. They would say, well, there was not a real man named Noah with a real boat and a real world flood. You don't believe that, do you? And so they will preach Genesis 1 through 11, not as historical, but as theological. They would say that that section of Scripture is simply parabolic. Those are parables to teach us some spiritual truth. That's what I was taught at Boston College. Now that's taught in every university in our nation. You take a religion course in any university in our nation, unless it's an evangelical, born-again, Bible-believing school, that's what they teach. And that's what many pulpits teach. And that's what most commentaries that are being written in our day explain. So how do we deal with this? Well, understand that if you want to see where someone stands on the side of orthodoxy, all you really have to ask is a couple of questions like, who wrote Genesis? Or you could ask, who wrote the first five books of the Bible? And if they say someone other than Moses, then you know you're speaking to a theological liberal and you should probably try to share the gospel with him. Well, obviously, the divine author is God the Holy Spirit. But the human author, the Bible teaches, is Moses. And this is important because if Adam is not a real person who committed a real sin then the real act that a real historical Christ made is absolutely meaningless. The analogy totally falls apart. But you have folks in our day who say some redactor, some editor came along, and he sewed together all these different accounts and gave us the Torah, the law, the book of Moses, or the five books in our Bible. And they will often speak of five authors, not just in five different books, but throughout those five books. But if you can't trust Genesis, you really can't trust the rest of the Bible. And so how does God describe the author of Genesis? Well, when God himself appears to Joshua 
in Joshua 1.7, he says, only be strong and very courageous and be careful to do according to the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Uh, we could look further into Old Testament books like 1 Kings or 2 Chronicles or Ezra or Nehemiah or Daniel, and they all give Moses credit for writing the first five books. So does the Lord Jesus in Mark 12, 26. There's a slide there if you bring it up. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses and the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Or in the Emmaus Road, when uh, Jesus met those two disciples, he said, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses, that's the first five books, and the prophets, that's the rest of the Old Testament with the exclusion of their hymn book called the Psalms. And in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms, God wrote all about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So if Jesus understood Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy to be written by Moses, that's good enough for me. See, if Adam's sin affected the entire human race, then that makes every single person accountable to God. And so some people don't like the Bible's explanation of sin and death. Why is there death? And why does there seem to be so many problems in the world today? People don't like the explanations that are given in God's holy world, word that sin and death are related to one another. And so they come up with other alternatives like evolution. Listen, if I evolved from an animal, and that's what our kids are being taught all across America, should I be surprised that they would live like animals? But if man is distinctly different from animals, if God, as Genesis records, breathed in the man the breath of life and he became a living soul, then man is on a different plane than an animal. And that's what the Bible clearly affirms. So if all that's true, then that makes man accountable to God. And some people don't like that idea of accountability. They want to suppress the truth of God in their unrighteousness as we studied in Romans 1. And so the evolutionists of our day are not so much scientists as they are rebels. Most Darwinists, most start with the premise that there is no God. Well, if you don't believe there's a God, then you have to come up with some other explanation for how this world got here, and their best explanation, their best attempt is that of evolution. Now, let me just say, I'm no scientist, and I don't claim to be. My higher degrees are in theology. And I know what the Bible says, and for me, that settles it. I don't need any more. And if you're not sure over the reliability of the Scripture, I just wrote a couple of articles in a new apologetic series for Answers in Genesis, and one is entitled, How to Prove the Bible is True. You might want to read that. I'm not here to defend that this morning. But I can read, and I can read the scientific arguments for creationism. And when I read them by men much smarter than I in that field, I realize it takes so much more faith to believe the monkey story than it does to believe what God's recorded. And so the devil is attacking the foundation. He's going against the very first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so the Bible very clearly affirms it. And so Adam is described as a real person. 
The genealogy of man is found in Genesis 5, in 1 Chronicles 1, in Luke 3. It's all traced back to Adam. Jesus, when he described the institution of marriage in Matthew 19, said that he created them male and female. And he's quoting Genesis 1.27. He believed Adam and Eve were real people. Well, the liberal theologians in our day say, well, Jesus was just accommodating himself, accommodating himself to those people who had embraced the false truth. He didn't want to tell them, well, this is myth, so he just kind of accommodated himself. Well, that would make him a liar. And if he's a liar, he's a sinner. And if he's a sinner, he's no one's savior. And again, this is why Genesis is the most attacked book in all of the Bible. Satan is so slick. At first, in the last century, in the early part of the 1900s, he he began to attack the fringes of Christianity. C.S. Lewis wrote this very profound statement. He said, in the earlier history of every rebellion, there is a stage at which you do not yet attack the king in person. You say, the the king is all right. It is his ministers who are wrong. They misrepresent him and corrupt all his plans, which I'm sure are good plans, if only the ministers would let them take effect. And the first victory, he writes, consists in beheading a few ministers. Only at the latter stage do they go on and behead the king himself. And that's where we are today. People are attacking the very person and teachings of the Lord Jesus every day. And so Jesus, foreseeing this problem, he said on one occasion to the Pharisees in John 5, for if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And so now evolution is taught as facts in our schools and the very credibility of the Lord Jesus is being supplanted. In 1 John 2.8, John speaks of the spirit of Antichrist that is at work. And as we move into the end of the age, to the last of the last days, the spirit of Antichrist is going to express itself more and more and more to where a literal man called the Antichrist will rule here on the planet. And he's preparing a generation of people for his allegiance. But you cannot deny that Jesus believed Adam was real in spite of what the spirit of Antichrist is saying in our day. The apostle Jude spoke of Enoch who prophesied in the seventh generation from Adam. He saw Adam as real. Paul, when he's dealing with the Athenian philosophers in Acts 17, he says, and he made from one man, Every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. Couldn't have said it any more plainly. From one man, from one blood, God made every nation. We all look a little bit different here, but we're all related. And God has an explanation even for the races. Unlike Hitler who thought, well, there were certain races that were just defective. There are no defective people in God's creation. God's explanation for the races is found in Genesis 10 and 11 when he confused the language groups and man was forced to marry within their language groups. And with time, those specific characteristics began to develop and express themselves. In 1 Timothy 2, Paul will say it was Adam who was first created. And so the historicity of Adam is absolutely essential to believing and embracing and applying the latter half of Romans 5. Now again, look in verse 12. 
I went off on that little tirade because if you don't understand this, this passage will make no sense. Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the world. Paul tells us how evil invades the human race. Sin has not always been on the earth. Adam was created in a way to enjoy perfect fellowship with God. There is some graffiti that was written on a wall there in New York City that became very famous, and it's a picture of Humpty Dumpty falling off the wall, and underneath were the words, he was pushed. Well, the Bible doesn't teach he was pushed. It teaches he jumped. Now, did you notice here in this verse that Paul did not write, sin came into existence through Adam? Because the first sinner in the Bible was Satan. Satan had already rebelled before the creation of Adam and Eve. However, it's Adam who's responsible for bringing sin into the human race that's going to cause all of humanity to fall. And as Genesis 3 and as Romans 8 will teach us, all of the creation to fall. As magnificent as our planet is, it's not nearly as beautiful as the way God originally created it. Now, maybe you're thinking, wait a minute, Pastor. How is it that an Adam will die? Adam wasn't the first to commit an act of sin. Eve was the first to eat. Well, that's true, but understand the responsibility goes to Adam because Adam was given the command. Remember in Genesis 2, the Lord commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat from it you shall surely die. Then we read in verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make, a, make him a helper suitable for him. So clearly, God gave the responsibility to obey, to subjugate the earth, and not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to, to Adam. Eve was not yet created. Now certainly, as her head, as she's described in the New Testament, she would have understood that that applied to her as well. But again, here in verse 18, God says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable. This is the strongest adversative in the Hebrew language. Loto, under no circumstances, is it good for a man to be alone. God said throughout the creation, It is good, it is good, is it is good, is it good? And then finally he says, It is not good. So he makes... What well, the Bible calls here an apser connecto, a helper suitable or a helper corresponding to him, one who exactly corresponded to Adam. And so it's the initial statement in Holy Scripture of the equality between a man and a woman. Long before the people of this earth ever came to the conclusion that men and women were equal, the Hebrew people read of it for centuries. God's Word had addressed the equality of men and women since the beginning of mankind. Yet many liberal scholars refuse to see that the gender roles complement each other, and instead they label the Bible as sexist and misogynistic. We are looking at the curse of sin that has been passed down through the ages in our study of the Book of Romans. If you would like to hear today's message again or would care to have a copy for your library, use the Search the Scripture app for smartphones and tablets or visit our website at searchthescriptures.org. 
Then search for today's program, ROM24, entitled God's Death Sentence. These downloadable resources are made available at no cost, and so please consider becoming an STS supporter when you contact us. And you can always reach us by phone at 877-787-7478 and request a CD or DVD copy as well. Tomorrow we continue our look at God's death sentence. Join us then as we search the scriptures.